This episode brought to you by the award-winning Sandy Gray Gin, distilled and produced on the gorgeous cradle coast of Tasmania and gold medal winners at the 2023 San Francisco World Spirits Competition. And just like that, we're at episode six, Bomb Cyclone. Okay, let's discuss Widowcon, condom scavenger hunts, the significance of that email to Aiden, that moment between Miranda and Steve, wowzers, and why this episode brought many of us to tears. Joining me to discuss the bomb cyclone and everything that came with it is screenwriter, playwright, Sex and the City superfan, Marie Hardy. Welcome back, Marie. I can't wait to talk to you about season two. It's been such a, I feel like it's been such a long time since we discussed, since we did a deep dive. And honestly, Sammy, I was, I knew that series two was happening and I thought, can I do that to myself again? Like, you know, it was, let's not mince mm. words. Like season one was a bit of a ride. Let's say they did some things right and some things were very bewildering decisions uh, and problematic. And then I watched the first two episodes of this season. I thought, oh, God, yeah, no. life is too short. They were very bad. They weren't they good. They were very, very bad. Wow, why would you open with those two? And I thought, well, to hell with it. I'm not going to watch it anymore. And then friends started saying it gets better. Reviews started saying it, it got better. I was probably bored one night. And I'm like, oh, all right, I watched episode three. And I cried in episode three. Yeah. And I thought, okay. All right. I'm more open and curious than I was. What was the moment you cried? It was Carrie recording her book. The book. The audio book, I think. That's right. Absolutely. And I think they're doing more successfully from episode three onwards. Those beautiful, you've got to have some light and fluffy storylines in there, the MILF list and stuff like that, which are classic Sex and the City storylines, which is just a little, it's a C story or a D story for a character who's not driving the episode. I think they're harder to sustain in a 45-minute episode than they are in a half hour. Half hour, you get a few frothy scenes of whatever the sea story is, whereas in a 45-minute, it's a delicate one to balance. But I think they've done it more successfully in Ep 3 where you've got the stories with gravitas, you've got time to spend with grief and separation and all that sort of stuff, but you get some beautiful little, you know, fairy floss in there, which I think we all like. I feel like with the first two episodes specifically, they were trying to cram too many storylines in. And now you've made me realise, is that because they've got that extra 15 minutes effectively to play with? Yes and no. I would also say the show was critiqued with very good reason in series one uh, for being tokenistic in terms of, the. as I read, they all got one women of colour each. You know, they're trying to make up for a lot of problematic stuff in the original series and sometimes veer too hard in the very earnest, look at us trying to be super woke and great. And I think they were so conscious of going, well, these women can't be tokenistic. We have to give them storylines of their own that are satisfying. But what that meant was in Ep 1 and 2 that everyone had a quite (laughs) big story. And you're like, no, no, someone's got to get a fluffy one. And I think the episode that we're going to talk about today the, the Hampton storyline, which is going to be Seema and Carrie, was a great example of going, it's a smaller storyline, you just dip in and out of it through the episode, it's not feeling like yeah. everyone's jostling to get a front row seat and I think maybe they've kind of, they've settled down a bit and they've started to realise that you put some energy in some stories, some episodes and not everybody gets a major story in every episode and I think that's helped the rhythm a lot more. That's why I love your insights as a writer. Let's talk about Bomb Cyclone. I loved the opening scene 
of this episode so much. Carrie's getting ready for a Zoom interview to promote her new book for a show that we've both acknowledged often gets things wrong, the simple things so wrong. It hit the nail on the head with this scene. It was so on point. For anyone who's ever done any kind of important Zoom meeting from home, she's sitting at the window because that's going to have the best natural light. She's got the ring light on as well. She's setting the laptop at the right height with the stupid boxes and books and anything else she can fit under there. And I was like, "That's that has been me in so many interviews I've done. And it was just such a simple scene that didn't really take us anywhere. But, yep, that is spot on. What I really loved about that scene, and I think you're exactly right, is also that Carrie was doing a Zoom meeting with a Gen Z millennial person who hadn't read her book, who didn't even know who she was. And I think that's important because Carrie is revered in a wider in real life society, but she's also, there's a sense of she's a very high end New York, you know, and to have a younger person go, I don't know who the fuck you are, I Googled you. She said, I Googled you. And I read, and you've written a ton of books. (laughs) And I'm like, this is great to see that she's not, she's an older woman. And there are younger women who are, you know, very active in the media who don't know who she is and don't know her legacy. And they're even like, oh, you've written a book called Sex and the City? Oh, my God, I love that. (laughs) And I thought that was, it was kind of great and humbling that not everywhere Carrie goes are people going, the great Carrie Bradshaw. Like, she's a different generation of women and... You know, those legacies don't always resonate down. I think that was important to see. It's one of those funny things that crosses over between the the fictional and the non-fictional or the, you know, reflection of what's happening in in the real world, which I found with the episode, the previous episode with Che and their focus group and the things that were said about Che, it felt like to me that was just a clap back at the haters. It's like exactly what people in real life have been saying about the character of Che. Yeah, I thought that was really brilliantly done. It was the writers going, we heard all the critiques of what people were saying about Che. I, it's, it's a surprise to everyone, myself included, that Che is one of the MVPs this season. I think their performance is amazing. The storylines are really interesting. I want to see more of them on screen. And I, I think that's a that's. That's a twist. I wonder if you're still in the minority there. Hmm, we'll get to Che. Yeah, I don't know. I'm still not there. I'm enjoying Miranda's divorce storyline much more than the Miranda and Che storyline. Yeah, I think the Miranda and Steve divorce storyline is amazing. I have found Miranda in this series a bit all over the place. As a, the character, I'm, you know, it, it might be a postmenopausal thing, but often you go, well, that's not, I don't think Miranda would do that. The phone going off in Che's pilot screen yeah. for one thing. Stupid. I just thought Miranda that we know might sneak the phone in and it really was a great storyline about how devoted she is to her son, but she would not have left the yeah. phone on. She's smarter so, than that. Yeah, there's, there's a, yeah, a couple of chaotic moments in there. We'll get to Miranda. Let's talk about Carrie first of all and WidowCon. We learn Carrie is going to be the keynote speaker at WidowCon. Okay, where do you sit with the, the whole concept of a WidowCon, first of all? Well, I support anything that helps people grieve. You know, there's no wrong way to grieve. There's no wrong way to reach for what you reach for. If women who have lost their partners find a way to connect in community, talk about vibrators, have a laugh, have a cry, I thought it was really compassionately handled as a lot of the grief has been in this season, which yeah. is 
is is no small thing considering that the actor who played Big has had sexual harassment accusations and for them to ensure that the character's legacy is honoured in the way that Carrie would do whilst there's a silent acknowledgement of the actor's problematic reality, I think they've done it really well. You really sense Carrie grieving Big the character. So for Widowcon, it's something that they could have treated in a very silly, light-hearted fashion. And I think they, I think it was actually a brilliant classic Sex and the City moment. We had the, the ex-friend Karen slash Carrie. So there was an almost like comedy, toxic, interesting thing there about Carrie having an ex who she'd burned and she couldn't remember. And Carrie's nervousness about having to speak after someone who was telling jokes. But ultimately... There was a lot of, you know, poignancy in there as yeah. well. See, I was worried at first when we started talking about Widow Con and the event coordinator appears on the scene, Karen, now Carrie. It was a little bit slapstick and comical with the Karen Carrie and I thought that's where they were going with Widow Con. So you're right, they did bring it back. Even when they, when Carrie got to Widow Con and there was the woman telling jokes on stage and everyone's laughing and she's like, oh, my God, I'm following this. But they just brought it around beautifully to her reading from her book and you can hear a pin drop in the room and everyone's, you know, feeling that moment. Oh, no, well, that's that's what I mean about, I mean, maybe we talked about the extra 15 minutes, right? And that's where they get the extra 15 minutes here is that in the half hour episode, that woman who told jokes before Carrie, we wouldn't have seen her again after she got off stage. In a 45 minute episode, you got that beautiful moment between the two of them where that woman was off. She wasn't doing her funny persona. And the two women who'd lost their partners just got to have a moment saying, I needed a good cry, and sometimes you do. I found that really emotional. Yeah. Like I feel quite emotional talking about it now. Yeah. When they do it well with the extra 15 minutes, it means that you have the time to sit in an emotional moment rather than go cut to another character. What's their small story doing? It's like let's just stay in these moments and give them some emotional depth. Does Karen slash Carrie win the award for the most annoying person in this series? behind, D, I think, Dee Dee, was it? The producer on Chase sitcom and Bitsy Von Muffling. Like, is Karen slash Carrie now the most... Well, certainly she is the most passive-aggressive character. I love... I Look, I, I take a bullet for Bitsy, so I can't... I, but also, <laughs> and unfortunately, I, well, fortunately, the woman playing Karen's Carrie, Rachel Dratch, who is Saturday Night Live alumni and I love, so I was just happy to see her on screen and I actually thought... Again, it was a storyline about Carrie's past, right? And this Karen Carrie person who Carrie had really hurt, like there was a real sense of we were writing a screenplay together, you didn't show up for the meeting and our big shot, we lost our big shot. Now, firstly, it's really hard to have someone carrying that for years and you don't remember their pain. Was this actually a part of the show that I I feel like, did I miss a whole storyline? Did Carrie ever write for a movie? No, I don't think we saw that storyline, but I also loved that Carrie was like, I was drunk for a lot of my <laughs> 20s and it just, I thought it was, it was funny and passive aggressive and annoying, but it really spoke to Karen had put a lot on that and that she hadn't forgiven her, but she's going to play it out in a really passag way. It's also a nod back to just another example of Carrie's selfishness that, as you said, it meant so much to Karen slash Carrie, but our Carrie is just like, I'm oh, sorry, I don't even remember you. But I did think she was 
the way Karen Carey, yes, she was obviously hurt, but she was so passive aggressive. And the way she just kept coming with the underhanded hits at Carrie, wanting to make Carrie feel very small as a person. And I thought Carrie maintained a really lovely level of politeness the whole time. Okay, so firstly, I would say she had to because she was in the she she was the one who'd done the dirty. It's like you know, it's like meeting someone and they say you broke my heart and it took me months to get over you and you're like, did we date? I can't. <laughs> so yeah, I think Carrie kind of taking it on the chin was was good. I did wonder why did Carrie invite Che to WidowCon? Why didn't she invite Miranda? Look, I reckon you're right. I reckon that's a hole in the plotting because what the writers and producers are wanting to do is keep Che in the show, but they clearly felt that the Che and Miranda storyline was running a bit thin. So they had to reignite Che's friendship with Carrie. And it was like when Carrie invited Che, I went, oh, that's weird. And then my friend Tamsin said, no, they used to do the podcast together. And I went, oh, yeah, of course. They knew each other before Miranda. Like I'd forgotten that because the Che Miranda story had taken over. Yeah. So they clearly want Che and Carrie to have more of a friendship and to keep Che in the loop via that, but it was a little bit confected. But I also guess maybe it was so they could have that moment where Che has the awakening at WidowCon, where Che's sitting in the audience listening to Carrie speak and they kind of have that, I'm done with Miranda, it's time to move on with my life moment. And that was a great place for Che to have that moment, I guess, in that in that environment. I think so too. I think it was worth having them there, but you're absolutely right. I think it's a light hole in the plotting that Che is not the first person that Carrie would, you know, and I'm sure if I was in the writer's room, we'd be saying, well, Carrie did call Miranda, but she was busy with Steve. You know what I mean? But that that's the sort of things that you do to justify those positions. We've already touched on it, but Carrie at WidowCon reading from her memoir, Loved and Lost, the women are captivated and the moments touching on grief are being handled so beautifully in this series. I'm really touched by the way they are handling grief. And I don't know if that's because I've just had my own heavy experiences with grief over the last 12 months, but they're really getting me, that's for sure. Yeah, I think so. And obviously, I mean, in a a very shallow sense, I was never a fan of big. I'm team Aiden all the way. So Carrie's starting to slightly dismantle the big narrative I'm enjoying very much. Do you know what I found interesting too? And this might be one of those moments where I just, I think too deeply about this show. (laughs) Was Carrie having Che at WidowCon, Che having that moment, you could see their face literally going, hmm, I'm thinking about my future and my relationship with Miranda. Was that another deliberate nod to the past? Remember that time Miranda spoke to Big at the pre-wedding dinner told him he's crazy to be getting married, which is possibly what scared him off the wedding. Now, Carrie doing the same thing back with Che, scaring them off the relationship with Miranda? Oh, that's really interesting. Are you saying that that could be a future storyline of Miranda saying, why did you let Che listen to your book? It was that kind of moment where Miranda says something that scares Big off. Has Carrie said something now that's basically scared Che off or encouraged Che to end the relationship and move on. <laughs> yeah, to be fair, I think Che should have. I'm, I'm glad that Che is ending the relationship. I think that's good for everybody. Oh, we, are, we all are. It's about time. All right, you mentioned Aiden. Let's go there. 
We launched finally. I mean, we don't see him, but we launched the big carry arc for this season. Aiden. The, the final line of this episode is really great and the way that they handle it because there's that email to Aiden waiting to go and Carrie says, some relationships are better left in the past. And you go, oh, she's going to delete it. And then she takes off her wedding ring. Is that what I think she does? Oh, she was taking off her earrings. But then she goes, some relationships are left in the past and she takes something off and puts it there and some are not and she presses send. And you go, that's the line between Big and Aiden. That's her going that's the past and this is my future. I thought that was a great final line for the episode. So I read some reviews about this and and some conversation online. It's the significance of that email. So way back in season four of the original show, Carrie creates her first ever email address solely for the ability to email Aiden after they break up the first time. Do you remember that? I I couldn't remember that. I had forgotten, but as soon as you said it, yes, I remember, because, like, the Aiden, all the Aiden seasons are my favourite seasons. Um, that was, what I do think, when the show was at its peak. But, yes, that was, I mean, it real timestamps it as well. Email, I'll have to get an email, and you're like, oh, God. But, yeah, that's a beautiful, that's a beautiful nod too. She doesn't text him. She doesn't DM him, message him on Instagram. She sends an email. It was a good email too. Did you think? You know, hope you well. And then it says, and if this is not you, carry on. (laughs) I thought that was like a, I thought it was quite cute. It's good writing. I can say as I'm having this chat with you now, I haven't watched beyond this episode. I have. um, I'm not going to tell you anything about the storyline. The biggest controversy seems to be online is the very first outfit that he's wearing when he sees her, which involves an absolutely hideous belted jacket. I've seen the photos and I did wonder about that. Very strange. Yeah, it's very weird. Not very Aiden. He sold his company John, for a lot of John money. Corbett, still hot. Still, still would. Are you happy with where the storyline's going so far? Yeah, I think so. I'm, I'm in a watch and, watch and wait mode, I think. Yeah, I think so. I'm curious to know where they're going to go with it. Candace Bushnell, who created the entire book and is the OG Carrie, always spoke about Series 1... Um, saying this is not I didn't think that Carrie would end up with a man being her be all and end all so she was a bit surprised that the big storyline ended up being you know the go-to so I'm curious that if the end of season two is I've got another giant love in my life and that's Aiden or I choose myself I my spider senses tell me that it's going to be the latter Mm -hmm. it's going to be an impact an empowering I don't need a man in my life to be happy even though Aiden is great, but I don't know how he's going to handle being broken up with for like the 11th time. Oh, I think Aiden fans would revolt against Carrie. I mean, they can't let her do that to him again. You should do it by post-it note. That would be amazing. That's like the... <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I can't. Sorry, please don't hate me. Okay, well, speaking of breaking up, uh, let's talk about Miranda and Chase soon. But first... I want to talk about this whole divorce storyline. As I said earlier, this storyline is so much more interesting to me for Miranda right now than the Che relationship. Miranda's now sleeping at Naya's and she wakes up and sees Naya's working on her divorce papers and Naya says, oh, it's going to be pretty straightforward, you know, a no-fault divorce. And Miranda says, well, that would be nice. Mine's an all-fault divorce. Clearly, Miranda is just holding on to so much pain and she is beating herself up over it. And she says, I did all the damage, so I just have to suck it up. I just feel like poor Miranda. You know, we've been so involved in the storyline with with Che 
she's obviously been holding on to this. Well, I agree, and and I I think that there's hope for Miranda's messy character yet. You know, the things that I've found really, this is not our Miranda in this, you know, series one and part of series two. I do think maybe this is the beginning of the new part of Miranda, which is, you know, when we leave any relationship, we have to make the space to grieve it, especially if we're a co-parent and there's a child involved. Um, And Miranda hasn't really had the space to do that because she was in new love, you know, queer land and having the best sex of her life. And like she was a besotted teenager in series one, which was really unnerving for people to see our very level-headed Miranda just lose it like that. She was so green with sexuality and, you know, chaotic. And I think now if the anchor is coming where she's sitting with the pain that she caused Steve and Brady and herself and and getting to be sad, that part of her life is finished. There's a line drawn beneath it. And I hope that breaking up with Che, which I, I think Miranda accepts very quite quickly, mm. I think it's Miranda realising that it's time to kind of sit and see what her life is on the other side of all of this. So I think it's they're really treating the, the divorce story again with the emotional depth it deserves. The scene in this episode where they talk about the house oh. and Steve says, I, I built this house, you didn't want this house and this is my house, is a real punch in the guts in the most, I thought it was great. I thought it was great. It was so powerful. I cried in that scene when she's at at the house waiting for Steve to get home because clearly she's ready to bring up the divorce and asks when he's moving out. And Steve just explodes and says, you didn't want me, you didn't want the house, you didn't want to move to Brooklyn, you didn't even want Brady. Oh, there were a lot of truth bombs there. And I think it's that big fight you have where you don't say things you mean, you just say things to cut as deep as you can. And then Miranda, it it clearly has the desired effect because she is sobbing and the look on her face, it's like she can't actually believe what's going on around her and what's been said. She is in complete shock and despair. And I, I've watched the episode twice, Marie, and I cried both times. It was such a powerful moment. You know what, same, and I and I I fully appreciate that we're talking about episode six in this in this season. The first two episodes, I was hiding under a cushion, screaming, "Make it stop!" And in this episode, I cried three times, no, nope, four times, and that's a good. It's it's frothy, it's funny, it's got sex in it. We can talk about the fashions in a moment, mm-hmm. but to have those human moments where you well up. Mm-hmm. I'm like, there they are. Thank you. Can I say too that that what you were talking about, Miranda, the the guilt that you know it's an all fault divorce, it's a my fault divorce, and a lot of that is is gendered and a really good way of looking at what it's like for a woman and mother to dare leave a family for her own happiness mm-hmm. and her own sex sexuality. Whereas you know it's a, it's a common that you know a man leaves the marriage for a you know 25 year old woman and dad dad sees you every second weekend but a mother do a mother daring to do it i think it's you know miranda's got that internalized misogyny as well where she's beating herself up for i'm the one who ruined this family i'm the one who should be carrying this guilt and shame and i, I appreciate them putting that on screen for us to kind of sit with too i thought about that marik but i didn't really know how to articulate it 
Um, and I watched it and thought, I don't want to, I don't want to generalize and I don't want to be sexist, but I've had experiences with friends where their husbands have cheated and left and they still blame the woman. They don't blame themselves. They blame the wife saying, you're the reason you haven't slept with me since we had the baby. And that's why I had to go and cheat. And you haven't been giving me enough attention because you're looking after our baby. And that's why I had to go and cheat. And I just, you've said exactly what I was thinking. It's Miranda is taking all of that guilt and blame on board. This is why we love the fucking Barbie movie. This is why, (laughs) because we know that the fucking Kens have been getting away with it too long. Sorry um, to swear, but... No, that's all right. I haven't seen Barbie yet. Oh, my God, Sammy, you have to see it. Mm. But, yeah, I think that's why I feel so much for Miranda. She's, yeah, because she is actually just owning her place in the demise of that marriage. Absolutely. Yep, she's doing the work. And I think now that she's not going to be doing strap-ons with Che and doing those storylines that she gets to sit in the in her grief and I think that's going to be really interesting how they handle that. Where were the four times you cried in this episode? With absolute pleasure I will tell you. So as discussed I cried uh, at WidowCon when that woman who told the funny stories just took a moment to not be on and I think you'd appreciate this as well as being a woman in the public eye and you're very bright and bubbly and like I would always I'd be in the book show and be really funny and and some that's very exhausting sometimes and it's hard to yeah. have those moments when you connect to your authentic self or you're sad and so to have that moment between Carrie and that woman where she wasn't performing, she just had a genuine emotional moment, was beautiful. I cried in the Steve Miranda really palpably, emotionally truthful divorce argument. I made this house. I made this house. I cried when Herbert turned up to his wife's really important... She walked through a blizzard in that incredible outfit. Yeah, we'll get to that. As a black woman filmmaker, I thought that was incredible. And I cried, I thought it was so beautifully done, the Charlotte storyline, the Charlotte Lily condom storyline. When she hugged her at the end? When she hugged her, but then there was this beautiful shot of her looking up at the window and the camera is moving away and Charlotte is looking up and snow is falling down on her face and it's like my daughter is entering into a space that I can no longer protect her from. I thought it was... Yeah. And I found Charlotte, I mean, I've always found Charlotte's performance, like, from from the get-go not just in and just like that but sex in the city very intensely perky she's never been a character that i've strongly connected with i mean obviously also she was always like a very privileged woman after a rich husband yes which is not my you know apparently i'm a miranda with a carry rising (laughs) (laughs) i'm probably the opposite Um, i'm probably a carry with a miranda rising to be honest um we're gonna get to charlotte Soon, but Miranda and Che, that first scene of them together in bed, we saw selfish, narcissistic Che. They won't cuddle Miranda after sex. They say they're not in the snuggle space. Then Miranda decides to go to sleep and Che thinks it's a good idea to start recording cameos. I mean, what was that about? That really annoyed me. Okay, so Sammy, I know you're super down on Che this season and I've sort of come come around a bit more. Now, I concur that the cameos in bed, with, that was just bad bed etiquette. If you're, if someone you're with is like, they've got to get up early in the morning, you've said goodnight, you go on into the living room to do your cameos. Um, Che should have gone into the living room to record the cameos, I agree. However, what I think this series has done exceptionally well is show Che's depression 
about things in LA not turning out and feeling a bit lost, having to get go and work at the vet and really losing their sense of self. And I think even in that scene where they're saying, I'm not doing the clubs anymore. This is the way I connect with people and I'm a failure. I'm a big failure. My show failed. I'm sitting at home smoking pot and eating snacks. And, you know, when we're in that really crisis point, we're not always compassionate or or good bedmates or, you know, conscious of someone else having to get up early. So I would say it was less narcissism and more, you know, pain. Mm. Thank you for pointing that out. Now I feel like a bitch. This is not how we self-talk, Sammy. I know. I just, I just think it's because of everything that's brought us here with Che. I've just not warmed to the character at all. I find them incredibly irritating and I think mostly I don't like what it's done to Miranda, what that relationship has turned Miranda into. So it's kind of by default I dislike Che. Well, you might have less of those now that they've broken up. Do you think they're going to be – do you think they're going to be endgame? Do you think they're going to end up back together? No. Or do you think it's done and Che is going to get some other storylines now? Well, this is also what I talked about in a previous episode. I thought it was inevitable that Che and Miranda would break up, but do we want to keep Che around as a character? I would. I'm as surprised as anybody that Che, for this season, I've found a clean slate. I think the writers did Che a disservice in series one because the the actor who is playing Che is amazing, mm-hmm. uh, IRL, uh, and so to then become this figure of kind of derision and fun in series one, I, I actually I really enjoy where they've been taking them in series two, so I want to keep them around. I think they're and let's see let's see what storylines they've got outside Miranda that are interesting to us. Miranda takes the breakup really well. I think Che was Miranda's gateway drug to queerness. You know what I mean? Like was a real sexual awakening, romantic awakening, physical awakening after many years that she realised that I don't have to be in this marriage with Steve. I don't have to accept being fingered badly. We all remember that fingering <laughs> oh scene from Steve. You can't wipe it from your mind. I don't want to think about it. Every now and then I think about it and it makes me feel very unhappy. Well, thanks for that. I hadn't thought about it again until just now. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, And she was drinking and she was so, you know, as we all should be grateful for the people that we've loved and have allowed us to love them along the way and the lessons they've taught us. I think Miranda is always going to have a really beautiful place in her heart for Che and what Che provided to her. But, yes, let's get some practical Miranda back in the game I think. Let's talk about Charlotte and Lily. Who knew Charlotte would be such an awesome sex positive mum? I love Charlotte so much in this episode. Love love everything about it. Me too and look you know we'd all die for Harry. Harry is just I would die for Harry Um, and I actually love there's a great opening scene in this episode where they're having brunch which is where Lily drops the bomb that you know she's decided now's the time to lose her virginity I love that Anthony's there I know I he's like not only he's bought 10 copies of the paper because Rock rocks in it the, in the debut and like a proud uncle has come over with all the copies of the newspaper they're all having brunch together and that is beautiful chosen family stuff I mm-hmm. do love seeing chosen families represented um but, yeah, Charlotte just goes, I did not have a mother who modelled pos- positive sexuality and I'm not going to be that person. Charlotte can really veer into silliness, not yes. just the character, but the writers can make her do some very silly things. Um, so to have this story handled really beautifully and then that moment that we spoke about before, really heartwarming, just this 
one shot of her face as the camera panned up and the snow came down and that line was drawn between her and her daughter forever. That was beautiful. You know, that's what surprised me about the scene is, okay, yes, Charlotte wanted to talk to her about sex and have the pre-sex chat when she went into her bedroom to follow up. I think we kind of expected the talk about the condoms, but it did, you know, shock me when Charlotte started telling Lily how important it is to take care of her own needs. I was like, you go, Charlotte. Did your parents ever have the chat with you? I just got the book. Where did I come from? I mean, I got the jump on my parents anyway because I was a very wayward teenager and our family was absolute mess. So that I think I never had the chance to have that conversation. But, you know, you find out what you've got to find out. And Lily's such a great character. I mean, she is a very weird song that she did in the, one of the first two episodes, which made me want to stab myself in the face about privilege, was terrible. But since then she's been a very feisty, independent There's a lot of love there, but it's tough love, you know, so the hug at the end was really earned, you know. I think Charlotte is such a traditionalist in so many ways and this just felt so progressive. I think that's what I loved most about it. Mm, Agree. I know you cried in the moment where they have the hug at the end, but the moment I really felt it was when they're in the kitchen and Lily says, right, that's it, I'm going to Blake's to do the thing. And as she goes to leave, you can see Charlotte tries to give her a hug and Lily pulls away. And I felt for Charlotte in that moment. She, The realisation she's letting go of her little girl and she kind of wanted that final hug as a mum for my little girl before she moves into this next stage of womanhood. That, for me, was a moment I was like, oh, give her the hug. Give her the hug. Yeah, and and Lily was such a teenager about it going, you're not going to hug me or anything, are you? And Charlotte covered and said, no, I'm just moving away from the stove because it was hot. I also, I mean, I know I, I sing the praises of Harry a lot. I thought they handled really well the reality of what someone like Harry would be like, which is I don't want to know about it. But they kept it to a minimum. He wasn't going, not under my roof or anything. Yeah. You know, he just was like, there was a great scene where, where she, you know, he says, where's she off to? And Charlotte says, she's going to do the thing that you don't want to hear about. And he's like, let's have a hot cocoa. I thought it was sort of funny and sweet, but not not overplayed. So long as I never have to see Harry in that wig ever again, I can't. I actually can't ever see that again. There needs to be a warning at the beginning of the episode if Harry's in a wig. I don't know if I need to see him getting a blowjob again either. I mean, like, all, all power to him and to them, like, get it, you two babes, but that's, the, you know. So, of course, uh, Charlotte gets the call from Lily that Blake doesn't have any condoms and the scene of Charlotte traipsing through the blizzard on a condom scavenger hunt in her little Burberry earmuffs and her Chanel crossbody bag. Oh, Classic. I loved that. It was just, as you said, it was those light, fluffy moments that we love in the show. Yeah, I mean, as someone who, like, I don't have a relationship with my mother, so I found it kind of confronting in a really beautiful way was that Charlotte would do anything for that girl. She is not going to have sex without a condom. I am going to go from chemist to chemist and call people. I just thought it was a a beautifully devoted moment. And even in that moment, she calls Carrie and says, come on, you must have some condoms. All the pharmacists are closed. I can't get any. And Carrie basically says, you are nuts, lady. You're on your own with this. And Charlotte screams into the phone, I'm a mother. It's like, I will do anything for my daughter in this moment. But can I just say, did Lily and Blake use the condoms that were delivered? Because I don't know if you remember, but at the end of season one... I had a prediction that Charlotte would become a grandmother. 
No, Lily's too smart. Lily wouldn't have had sex without the condom. I think so too. And what I kind of extra loved about that storyline is that we didn't need to know if Lily and Blake did it or didn't do it. That's their business. We're about we were about Charlotte's experience. So I'm curious, yeah, I mean, I can't see Lily falling prey. She is too smart, but who knows? Condoms break. If they had a broken condom, I think that would be a bit of a cop out from the writers. I think then then Lily would have an abortion and I'd be very curious to know if they're going to take uh, one of the kid characters down that path. I, if they did, very bold and brave of them and I would applaud that, especially in an America where Roe mm-hmm. v. Wade has been overturned and women's bodies have been politicised. To have a kid character on that show have an abortion, I would give two thumbs up to, if they had, depending on how they handled it. So that blizzard was causing problems all around. Let's talk about Lisa and Herbert. I I haven't spoken to you this season yet. I love I love their marriage. They they have a lot of sex in that dressing room, don't they? <laughs> Whatever that dressing room's in, they all both get razzed. I'm going to bend you over this and run you like a heated car. I'm like, I can just get dressed. Get dressed. Put your makeup on. Well, they can't have sex in the bed because all the children are in bed with them by the looks of it whenever they're in it. <laughs> MoMA is honouring Lisa as a black female filmmaker and it's the same night as Herbert has his big com- campaign event. Why couldn't they just say, I'm doing my thing and you're doing your thing and this is just how it's going to be tonight? Well, I mean, that is what they did at, at first and it's nice to see a, a dramatic representation of two alphas in a relationship on screen that no one gets prioritised. I mean, with someone like Miranda and Steve, Miranda would always be prioritised as they say in relationships, my friend always says there's always one main character and one supporting cast. I like to say there's a kite and someone holding the string. Aww. I think it's, you know, it's, and, and you need that. Two kites get their strings tangled a lot, I think. So it's it's beautiful and fascinating to see how, they, how these two negotiate. We are both power players in this relationship. Both of our needs are very important. And then he could see historically, creatively, politically, how much more important it was for her. So Lisa's car service cancels in the blizzard and Herbert offers to drop her off. Why was she too proud to let him drop her off? She says she didn't want him to save her. I don't, what did, I don't want you to be my knight in shining Tahoe or something. I don't get that. Just grab the damn ride to your event. I don't think that's being saved. I think it's just saving your own ass to get where you need to be. I would agree with that too. Uh, but then we would have, have lost the magnificent shot of her traipsing down an empty, snowy street, this fabulous dress kind of, yeah, with a big hat. And you don't want to miss that. So, But I thought that was ridiculous. I'm sorry. She is not walking in a blizzard from the Upper East Side down to MoMA and she hardly breaks a sweat. I don't, have you ever walked through a blizzard? It's not pretty. No, but also, Sammy, like, you know, the fantasy, I carry the high heels that Carrie has worn for a bajillion years. <laughs> I'm not, I'm in sneakers walking down Fifth Avenue. You know what I mean? Like, the element of fantasy in this show is why we watched it. And I also think it was beautifully symbolic, which is her saying, this is so important to me that I will, you know, over hill, over mountain, over, you know, she, it was a quest. It was an episode about a quest. As we've said a few times in this 
episode of the podcast talking about having that extra 15 minutes in the show, they allowed us to share that moment with Lisa on stage in MoMA. And we find out a bit more about her film. She's wanting to put the spotlight on the unsung sheroes. Love that word. The sheroes who built America. I loved that. That scene didn't feel as rushed as many others in the character storylines have. I would hard agree with that. And again, I feel like they've found their rhythm uh, from episode three onwards. Like we get to sit in some stories and some stories you, you don't need to see every person having a story in every episode. You just get to take a bit of time. Carrie and Seema at the Apple store. Okay, this was bizarre to me. This whole storyline about getting the summer house in the Hamptons, I found it a bit unnecessary. And then all I thought was... Didn't Carrie and Big have a house in the Hamptons? Isn't that where they were going to the night he died? I can't remember that. Now, I did like this storyline, just speaking of the 45 minutes, and I thought it was just enough for, you know, in a 45 minute, that would be the F storyline. I think it had two, maybe three scenes. And what I liked about it was that element of of two single women of that age going, let's do things together. And I talk with girlfriends about, I mean, I'm married now, which is wonderful, but uh, but, um, but we talk about, you know, women getting houses together when they're older or pulling their resources. There's a great story about those seven women who bought a house, I think yes. it was in China, and just retired together. And so to have a little element of that of Seema going, I don't want to be in some married couple's spare bedroom with the kids' surfboard. I want to be fabulous. I want to do it with my girlfriend and have it not be tragic. And I was like, hell yeah. What I didn't like in this scene, can you explain to me or can someone explain to me Carrie's oversized 80s ski onesie? What the heck? That is one of the worst outfits I have ever seen Carrie Bradshaw in from day one. I didn't like that either. And also what she was wearing when Seema came over to look at property, she was wearing like white jeans, badly fitting white jeans and that jump. I, they were two misses for me in this episode. From one of the worst looks to one of the best, let's talk fashion before we wrap up, is uh, Carrie walking through the blizzard in that sweeping yes, Montclair yes, gown yes, slash coat. Yes, absolutely dead. That, that, <laughs> that, you could have, that whole episode could have just been her walking around in that coat. I would have said 10 out of 10 no notes. I also loved the blue-green dress she wore at Widowcon with the slightly puffy sleeves. That was stunning. I mean, it's hard to look past that coat oh. in the snow. That I, I just, it was a showstopper. Everything else sort of paled by comparison, I have to say. I usually like Seema's outfits, the beige one in the Apple Store. I'd be like, eh, oh, yeah, that, that coat. I'm still thinking about it yeah. now. I'm, lo- I'm lost in a reverie. <laughs> yeah. Is there anything else from this episode you'd like to touch on? Um, no, it's funny because I'm so always so excited to talk to you and to talk about this because I re-watch, I'd watched this episode already, but then I rewatched it knowing that we were going to discuss it and really appreciated the poignancy and the moments of emotional gravitas even more the second time around. And it made me have a bit more of a tip of the hat to the writers who I was ready to send hate mail to after those first two episodes. <laughs> Not that I would ever do that, but I just thought, what have you done? Like you had all that time to think about it. You had all that time to reflect on what you got wrong in season one and this is what you give. That first scene about the with Carrie in bed with the guy talking about cooking salmon. Oh, and the writing the vaginal um, suppository ad. I can't, don't know. You're going to make me mad at them all over again. So anyway, let's just enjoy. Thank you for your time and I hope to chat to you again this series. 
This episode brought to you by the award-winning Sandy Gray Gin. You can find out more at sandygraywhiskey.com.au.